Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. All right, Exodus chapter 20. Our text today is going to be the first eight verses of Exodus chapter 20. We're going to deal with the first commandment, but I thought it would be good since we're beginning to look at the first tablet of the law that we would just read the first tablet of the law, the first eight verses of Exodus, and we will probably do that every week until we get to the second tablet of the law, and we will read that as our text. So Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we thank you again for this privilege we have to be in your house and the opportunity we have to come together and to fellowship with one another, to rejoice with one another, to share our burdens and concerns with one another. to worship you and to spend time in your word, to, uh, and to allow you to use the word, the truth, to sanctify us. We do thank you, Holy Spirit, as Candace sang about, that you are here in us and with us today. And we're asking you to lead us into all truth, as Jesus promised in John that you would do. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us insight and wisdom and that we would be changed because we have been under your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are starting outright on the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words today. Had a couple sermons by way of introduction leading up to this, and still in a, in a little bit, the first part of this sermon will be an introductory kind of aspect as we look at the preface to the Ten Commandments, and then we deal specifically with the first Commandments. So as we did, we read the first tablet of the law. And so the first tablet of the law is really summarized by Jesus Christ. You remember Matthew chapter 22, they came to Jesus and, hey, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied to them, the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, hey, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws hang all uh, the, the law and the prophet, or these two commandments hang all the law of the prophet. So everything that God has been instructing us through the Old Testament, through his prophets, through his word, 
hinged on this idea of loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then loving your neighbor as yourself. And that, as we have laid out in the introduction, is a summation of the Ten Commandments. And that's one reason I think they're still relevant to us today. As we've made the case, we're not saved because we keep the Ten Commandments, but because we are saved... We now are compelled to obey and keep God's law because it is a reflection of God's character. And it is how God has shown us what it looks like to live in relationship with him and live in relationship with uh, one another. So the question comes to our mind in the summation, if, if this idea of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is a fulfillment of the first tablet of the law, then what, what does that look like? How do we accomplish that? What does it look like to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength? If you bring Jesus's quote in with uh, the quote there in uh, Deuteronomy, I believe is where that, that comes from. Well, I, I like the way Dr. Vody Bauckham defined this idea of biblical love. Now, it, it can it can be broader in the sense of our love for one another fits this de- this definition and this description. But in our context today, this also fits our understanding of what it means to love God. And so he says that love is an act of the will. So in other words, it is a volitional choice, right? In our society, what have we made love? We've made love become a purely emotive, right? Uh, we've made love uh, a matter of of how we feel, you know, Cupid, draw back your bow, let your arrow fly, right? Uh, are we love who we love or love, love wants what it wants, right? Those kinds of things. You've heard that idea. Well, biblically, love is an action. It is an act of the will. We volitionally choose to love. And so the definition goes on. Love is an act of the will accompanied by an emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. So the implication is, if we're going to love properly, we need to understand that love is more about action. It's not devoid of feeling, but our, our will influences our feeling, which leads us to act properly toward that object that we love. And in this case, the object of our love being God himself. So it is a willful, volitional choice to love God with every fiber of our being. We choose to do that, and then that leads us to live in a particular kind of way. And so what does it look like, again, to love God? What does it look like to come before a holy, righteous God in a practical kind of sense. I think these four words, these four commandments, give us at least a foundational element of what that is going to look like. And, and really couched in all of this, this first tablet speaks to the idea of our worship of God, right? Because our worship is our act of love to him. If you remember what Paul told us in Romans chapter 12, worship is not just confined to uh, a a four-walled building, right? That is an aspect of it. In the Old Testament, they came to the tabernacle. They came to the temple, right, to worship the Lord. 
Today, we come into a house of worship where we gather to specifically worship the Lord. What did Paul remind us in Romans chapter 12? He says, offer your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord, which is, and again, depending on your translation, but probably the best way to understand that, this is your reasonable act of worship. Some translations say reasonable act of service, but the language behind that still has underlying it this idea of worship to the Lord. And so our daily life ought to be a sacrifice of worship to the Lord. In other words, we ought to demonstrate our love for God every day, not just on Sunday, not just on Wednesday, but every day of our life we ought to demonstrate our love to the Lord. And so the implication behind the Ten Commandments is there's a particular way in which we come to worship the Lord. There's a particular way in which we come to demonstrate our love uh, for the Lord and our worship of the Lord. And you guys have heard me say this before. You might not remember it, but it's been a while back. We were, we were in Exodus, remember, a long time ago, dealing with the tabernacle and talking about God's presence, you know, him wanting to be with his people uh, in, in that aspect. And we talked about in that dialogue this concept of worship, and we dealt with two aspects of worship historically, and that's the regulative principle of worship and the normative principle of worship. Excuse me. In the regulative principle of worship, the idea is that God has prescribed for us specific ways that he has explicitly stated that we ought to come to him in worship. And those who hold to the regulative aspect of worship say that we should only worship God in the way that God has prescribed to us that we ought to worship him. And then by contrast, the normative concept of worship is that as long as it's not forbidden in the Bible, then we ought to be able to incorporate it into our acts of worship to God. Now, we're not not going to settle that argument today. I just bring that up to make a point to you. Honestly, if you want to know where I stand, I lean more toward the regulative aspect of worship that we ought to worship God in a particular kind of way. And God has laid that out for us. But obviously, in a practical sense, in our church and most every church I've ever been a part of, we probably live more in a normative kind of idea, right? Where we allow things into worship that are not specifically forbidden uh, in Scripture for us to do. And, and, and I'm not saying that we are necessarily wrong for that. My, my heart wants to go to a more regular kind of aspect of worship. But anyway, that's, that's where I stand, but I, we're not going to quibble over that uh, today. Probably, if you really want to know it, we, we, we have more of an eclectic kind of worship in the modern Christian worship. But the heart of what we're reading about in the Ten Commandments is God has laid out a specific way we are to come to him, that we are to love him, that we are to worship and honor him, in particular in the Ten Commandments. And so let's see how that looks today. And we're going to deal with one aspect uh, of that uh, today. I wanted to give you this definition by Bruce Leafblad uh, in his treatment of the idea of worship. In his treatment of the idea of worship, he gives this definition. He says, true worship happens when we set our minds, affect, our attention, and our heart's affection 
on the Lord and praise him for who he is and for what he has done. And I think the preface of the Ten Commandments that we have already read today lays that out perfectly. We worship him because of who he is and what he has done. And because of who he is comes this Ten Commandments, this moral code of God. It emanates from who the Lord is. So today, that's kind of how we're going to go about this passage. We're going to look first at the preface of the Ten Commandments, but we're going to deal specifically in that preference with the perfect lawgiver, verses 1 and 2. And then we'll piggyback again on verse 2, and we'll look at the covenant God, uh, who is that perfect lawgiver. And then thirdly, we'll look at the preeminent precept or the preeminent law or commandment, because I think from this commandment falls all the rest of these commandments that that, uh, the Lord's going to uh, give to us in the Ten Commandments. Are you tracking with me? You're alive? You're breathing? Okay. As they say, quiet as a church house mouse. In here. So, all right. Uh, the perfect lawgiver, verses 1 and 2. Look at that passage with me again. And God spoke all these words. And then the second part of that preface is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God sets the foundation from which this law comes. It comes from the one true and living God, the covenant God of Israel. He is the lawgiver in this uh, in this setting. And don't, rem- don't forget the the, the setting in which the law was given. Just one chapter over, if you turn to back to, your, to the left or maybe it's on the opposite page in your Bible, just one chapter back, we see the children of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai. And God descends upon that mountain and God is called the assembly together to gather uh, before that mountain. And God uh, engulfs that mountain with a, with a dark cloud. There's lightning and there's smoke and there's fire. And the Bible says that the entire mountain quaked. So it was a massive earth shaking or earth quaking that went on there. <coughs> so much so that the people were terrified. And then they heard God speak in the thunder. And you remember the, the, the narrative, right? They said to Moses, you go and talk to God and you come tell us what he says to us. We don't want to hear him speak anymore. It terrified them when they heard the Lord speak. And so it's the very presence and the essence of the creator of this universe, the almighty God himself came down and spoke to them and gave them these commandments that we're about to read and through Moses, the rest of the law that is in the Old Testament. So we ought to pay attention to what God says in this moment because he didn't send an angel. He came down and he spoke with them. He is the eternal law giver. And so that leads us to point number one as it relates to this law giver, God's eternality. And really, if you look at the verse 2 in the first part of it, he says, I am the Lord. Well, I couldn't help but think of Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14 when I read those first uh, you know, four words. I am the Lord. 
You remember Exodus 3.14? It's Moses before the burning bush. And Moses, uh, as he is before the burning bush, God is calling him to go back to Egypt and to confront Pharaoh and to lead Israel out of slavery. And Moses says to God, well, who am I going to tell them sent me? You remember the Lord's answer to that, right? I am. Well, that kind of seems odd, right? That he would give that name for himself. That, that almost doesn't even make sense when we first think about it. What does it mean that I am sent, sent you? Well, you, you guys have heard probably uh, sermons, sermons ad nauseum on the idea of the being verb in the Hebrew, which forms that name, the tetragrammaton, Yahweh, uh, Y-H-W-H, which the idea behind that is he is the existing one. Quite literally, God says to Moses, I exist, right? And, and the implication behind that, though, is, is, really, is really great because God is saying that there is none beside me. There's never been one before me, and there will never be one after me. I am the existing, living God. That's who sent you. And the contrast is opposed to, as we talked about a little bit in the Sunday school, these so-called gods of Egypt, right? These worthless, dumb idols that these people worship in futility. I am the one true living God, and I'm about to show you, and I'm about to show Egypt that I am the only God that exists. <clears throat> That's the God that came down and spoke to the Israelites at Mount Sinai what theologians call, okay, here's your theological word for today, the aseity of God, all right? Let me spell that for you. I should have spelled the word I spelled. Uh, I can't spell it now because I don't have my notes when I use uh, schenectady. <laughs> but <laughs> the aseity of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y, the aseity of God, it just means that God is self-sufficient. He's self-sufficient and self-existing, right? There's nothing that created him. He has always been. As a matter of fact, you can say it this way. There has never been a time when God was not. Right? He's always been. There will never be a time when God ceases to be. He has always been. He will always be. That's why in the Old Testament, you know when you read Revelation and we hear Jesus say, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Well, you know where that comes from? It comes from the Old Testament. Where God the Father says, I'm the Alpha, and you know, I'm the beginning and the end. He don't use Alpha and Omega. He just says, I'm the beginning and the end. God has always been. And there's been no time when he was not, and there'll never be a time when he is not. And we talked about this again in Sunday school. So again, if you're not in Sunday school, uh, you need to come. Sometimes we talk about some interesting things. We've talked about this today, this idea of equality with God. And one, one author put it this way. This is Mayer, and he, he, was, he was being quoted in David Guzik's, uh, Guzik's semi, uh, commentary uh, on this passage. He says, there is no equivalent for God but God. If you place God on the one side of your symbol of equation, in other words, you put an equal sign up and you put God on one side, there is nothing to be put on the other by himself. In other words, there's nothing that compares to God. He is the one true and living God. And there is no one or nothing like him in this universe. He is the eternal God. So what's the implication of that? That the eternal God came down. God spoke these words. The I am 
The always existing one spoke these words. The eternal God. Well, the implication is that, hey, these commands that God gave emanate from his eternal character. There's nothing outside of God by which he looked to and said, okay, here's a good moral standard of law that I need to give to these people. No. God himself is the standard. And this moral code emanates from the character of God. And since he is eternal, and we'll talk about it in a minute, he's unchanging. Well, these laws are eternal, and they're eternally binding. And again, in Sunday school, we talked about this. We didn't get to it in our text in Sunday school because I'm too long-winded. But in Jeremiah, we learned that his message in chapter 2 is not just for Israel. It was, it was also for the nations. And so what was God saying? Because the, the sin of Israel in that passage was idolatry. The same sin that we're talking about here in these first four tablets of the law, really, in a, in a, in a broad sense. That everybody who does not worship the one true and living God is guilty of breaking this commandment. Everyone, Jew and Gentile. And so these are eternal commandments that are eternally binding by which God stops every mouth. That leads to the second part, God's sovereignty. The eternal lawgiver, not only is he eternal, but he's sovereign because God says, again, verse 1, God spoke all these words. The implication is he, the eternal God, has the right to speak these words, and he has the right to declare to us how it is we ought to relate to him and how it is we ought to relate to one another. And then look, he tells us about his sovereignty in that uh, second part of uh, verse 2. He says, listen, I am the Lord your God, I am the one, he says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. It is God who is working in time and space to bring about redemptive history in the Old Testament through the Israelite nation coming toward the Messiah. In the New Testament, Christ came, God in the flesh. But God throughout eternity has determined what the plan of redemption was going to be. And God in time and space from the very beginning of time began to work out redemptive history and he continues to work it out today. He is sovereign over this universe. He is sovereign over your redemption and my redemption. He is sovereign over you and he's sovereign over all the nations of the world. And he has the right as his sovereign uh, status gives him to demand of us to live and follow him in a particular way. And so he has set that forth for us, I think, in the Ten Commandments. And one, one of, to me, one of the most um, brilliant, not the right word, but compelling stories that demonstrate the absolute sovereignty of God, even over pagan nations, is in Daniel. You remember in Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4? When Nebuchadnezzar, the, you know, the Babylonians, that, that was the world power of the day. They were the superpower of the world uh, in that day. And Nebuchadnezzar had conquered um, the, the known world, so to speak, in, in that day. And he gets out on his uh, rooftop or on his balcony, and he looks out at everything that he has done, and he says, man, look at what I've done, right? What a marvelous thing that I've done. Well, God had already prophesied to him that, hey, in a dream, there's coming a day when you're going to be turned out like a, a cattle. 
right? You're going to be turned out like a cow, a beast of the field, and you, you for seven years are going to eat grass. Well, that day came when he stood out in his arrogance and his pride, and he said, look what I have done. And God said to him, big boy, I'm thinking to show you. That's, that's Alabama, right? I'm thinking to show you who's in charge. And he turns him out like a beast of the field. And for seven years, he grazed on grass. His hair grew long. His fingernails grew long. And at the end of that seven years, he came back to his senses, as God said he would. And then listen to what Nebuchadnezzar says. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures for generation from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. Well, that's the most powerful message of God's sovereignty. I think in the book of Daniel. God is the sovereign potentate. Again, as Bodhi Bakum says, God's not running for God. He is God. He's not asking you to make him Lord. He is Lord, right? He is Lord. He is sovereign. And then, so since these are sovereign, he has the right to dictate this, uh, this moral code to us. And then it leads thirdly to the uh, immutability of God. And I, again, I go back to verse 2 when we think about this idea of the immutability or the unchanging nature of God. Verse 2, he says, I am the Lord. I am the existing one. And we read other passages in, in uh, the Bible, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. <coughs> Excuse me. I love that passage. Because what has Israel done in their history? Remember Miss Martha we talked about in Sunday school. Their, their, their life with the Lord in, in the promised land was we're on fire for God and then we have turned away from God. We're on fire for God, we turned away from God, right? God never wavered in his commitment to them. In that passage, God is saying, the very last prophet in the Old Testament, the Lord says, I never changed, that's why you're not consumed. Because I hold up my end of the deal. Even though you are unfaithful to me. That's the kind of God we serve, this immutable God who is never changing. And we know in the New Testament, Jesus uh, reminded us in, in Matthew five eighteen, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Because God is unchanging, his law is unchanging. And you guys have heard me say this before. Just because Jesus came and fulfilled the law, just because Jesus rescued us from the, the condemnation that the law brings to us, that in no way negates the fact that God still believes that you shall not murder. God still says you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you honor your father and your mother, don't covet, have no other gods before me, don't take my name in vain, right? Don't make any carved in, images, hold the Sabbath day and keep it, keep it holy. We'll talk about that, right? That's a question we have to answer as Protestants and as, as New Testament you know, Christians, how do we deal with the Sabbath commandment? We'll talk about that when we get there. But the point is, God's law hadn't changed. His character hadn't changed. He's eternal, immutable, unchanging, the sovereign leader of this universe. And by nature, he 
commands us to live and, and walk in a particular way in relation to him and in relation to one another. All right, that leads us to point number two. I gotta hurry up. Uh, the covenant God. Because not only do we see this transcendent, sovereign, immutable, eternal lawgiver who gives us this law, we also see, as we saw in Sunday school again, this relational God who wants to have an intimate, personal relationship with his people. And this law is the foundation. It is the structure by which God says, this is how you relate to me. And this is how you in turn will, will relate to one another in the world. And again, we have to go back to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 2. We see that when he says in this idea of this covenant God, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And Yahweh became the covenant. Jehovah, some translations will put it as Jehovah. But that became the covenant name of God for Israel. Over and over again, Israel, if you read the Psalms, they're talking over and over again about Yahweh. Yes, Elohim is in there and other names for God is in there, but Yahweh is that prominent covenant name for God. Listen to Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5 through 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my, co my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see the relational aspect of God, that covenant relational aspect. So when God gives them this law, it is not to put a weighty burden on them, right? My, my, my yoke is easy. My burden is light, right? It's not to put a weighty burden on them. It is to give them proper parameters in which they can come before a holy, righteous God and have relationship with him. That's why all of these consecrations and things took place in, in Exodus as it relates to the tabernacle and it relates to the temple because you can't just flippantly walk in before a holy God. We need to honor and reverence him. And God lays this foundation of how they ought to do that. And so sometimes I think we forget that we are part of that same kind of covenant. We call it the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ, as the author of Hebrews reminds us, right? We are God's covenant people when it comes to our relationship with Jesus Christ. We have entered into covenant with God through grace, right? Through faith. And we can come through Christ Jesus. So we have that kind of relationship with God. But we still are bound to this idea of how we worship God. We're still held to this first commandment that we should have no other gods before God. Just to validate to you that I'm not making this up, that we are part of this covenant, listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race. He's talking to Gentiles. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. All right, kind of sounds like worshiping him and praising him for who he is and what he's done. You, he called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. And Paul puts it another way. We, we are slaves to sin, but God has made us free in Christ, right? So he called all of us out of slavery, just like he called Israel out of slavery. And he led us out of slavery. So we are part of that covenant. And then he's a personal God. Look, Yahweh, the personal God. 
the second part of that phrase, I am the Lord, there, there's a little uh, pronoun in there. I am the Lord, your God. Isn't that powerful? We, we've seen this idea of nation, and a lot of times we, 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 we want to talk about election and we want to talk about this covenant in a, in a broad national group kind of sense. And in some ways that is true. But every group is made up of what? Well, individuals. And God not only relates to a group of people, he relates to you, right? He relates to me on a personal, intimate level. That's the kind of intimacy God wants to relate with humanity. Not just in a general, broad, national kind of sense, but in a personal, redemptive way through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is our God. Isn't it, isn't it powerful what the psalmist says in Psalm 23? The Lord is what? My shepherd, right? Not just Israel's shepherd, although he was Israel's shepherd. But David says, the Lord is my shepherd. And he says, because of that, I shall not want. The same God is your shepherd. That's the same kind of relationship he wants to have with you. And he's laid out for us how it is that we can relate to him properly in that way. And then uh, thirdly, he's a redeeming God. God is a redeeming God. Look in verse, verse 20, or chapter 20, the last part of, of verse 2. <clears throat> what did he do? He brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's pointing to redemption. What was the, what was the tenth and final plague? It was a plague of redemption, wasn't it? It was a plague of redemption through the blood of the sacrifice. And it pointed to Jesus Christ. It led to the Passover, right? That's how God called them to remind, rem, remember what he did in Egypt, bringing them out of slavery, redeeming them from the house of slavery. And what did Jesus do on the Passover, his final Passover in that upper room? At the end of that meal, what did he do? He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, what did he say? I'm the fulfillment of everything you've been looking at and you've been looking toward. It's me. I am the Passover. And it's through me that you find true and lasting redemption. And so this God is not just some big bully making rules for us. It is a God who has laid out for us how we can have a personal, intimate relationship and what it looks like when a people come and love him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that leads us to the final point, the preeminent precept where we need to be getting to in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, what, is, what does that mean? Well, one, we, we, must, we must submit to God alone. We must bow the knee to God alone. Well, one of the implications of that statement, you shall have no other gods before me, in a positive sense, we must have a God. We must have a God. This is a prohibition against atheism, right? God demands every person believe in him. That is the requirement. We must believe in God. There is no room for non-belief. As a matter of fact, that is breaking the first commandment. And guess what the world does for the most part? Yeah, there are those who claim to be atheists, right? But what does the world do? What did Paul tell us that the world does? It's not that they don't know that there's a God. 
Because God's made himself known. Even in creation around us, he's made himself known. So much so that men stand before him without excuse just by virtue of the creation around us. But what do men do? They see the truth that there is a creator in this world and they reject that truth. They suppress that truth. And either they claim to say there is no creator or they make a God of their own design, right? And they believe in that God. And sometimes atheism even is making yourself God or believing in science and making science God. God says we must believe in God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, right? We must believe in God. But we can't stop there. We must believe in the right God. Now, that doesn't mean there are other gods. There's only one true and living God. But people make up gods all the time, right? These worthless, foolish idols. We must believe in the one true and living God, the one who has always existed. I am the Lord, your God. There is no other, right? Not the gods of Egypt, not the gods of the people around you. There's only one true and living God, and that is the God you are to believe in. And for us, God has made himself plainly known in the person Jesus Christ. He is the exact image of the Father. Jesus said, if you want to know the Father, then look at me. If you know me, you know the Father. So it's in Christ that we find the exact representative of God the Father. And we placed our faith and our trust in him. We must believe the right God. So again, that's a prohibition against <clears throat> ignorance or agnosticism, right? You can't, you can't deny God. You can, but you're going to be wrong. That's breaking the first commandment. We must, and again, you can go to the deepest, darkest places of the world, and what are people going to be doing? They're going to be worshiping something, right? They're going to be worshiping something. It's going to be ancestors, right? Or it's going to be a volcano god. It's going to be a river god. It's going to be a crop god. It's going to be something. Maybe their ruler. They're going to be worshiping something. We got to worship the right God, the only God. That is our only hope. And then obviously we must only have one God. Make no other, have no other gods before me. And quite literally, before my face. Don't have any gods before my face. What, what, an, what an egregious offense to God for his people, Israel in particular here, to in his face worship false gods. That's, that's like thumbing your nose at God. That's like spitting in the face of God. That's like open hand slapping God. And the question we ask in Sunday school because it was about idolatry. What is it in our lives that can relate to that? Right? We don't have little statues in our home, at least I hope you don't, of gods. But what is it in my life and in your life that I have made more important to me than God? And so... I am, I am putting this idolatrous thing in front of the face of the God that I claim to serve. Now, I can't answer that for you. You can't answer that for me. 
We need to examine our own lives and, and answer that. So, you know, one of the things that, I'm about to wrap it up at 11.33. One of, the, one of the things that we see, and it's maybe not as prevalent as it used to be, but for a while there, you could see them all the time. There was these little bumper stickers that said, coexist, right? You ever seen those with all the different religious symbols on there? Well, that, that can't happen, right? They can't all be right. And if you think about it from a biblical Christian worldview, well, there's only one that's right, and all the others must be wrong. So in that sense, we syncretism, that's another big word, syncretism is idolatry. You understand that? I, I can't. I, I can love people who are Muslim. I can love people who are Buddhist. I can love people who are Hindu. But I cannot validate and accept <clears throat> their religious ideology. I cannot. Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to God but by me. There's only one God, and we must bow to that one God, and we must serve that one God alone. All right, let me wrap this up. <clears throat> We're asked the one question. What, what, what we need to do is examine our lives what, what, even in our hearts, right? It doesn't have to be an idol. It doesn't have to be a statue. In our hearts, what are those things that we have raised up in our minds and in our hearts that our actions demonstrate that we love more than we love God? You know, for some people, it's sports, isn't it? I guarantee you, you drive down to Wetumpka and you look at that field that right now on what we call the Lord's Day, that it'll be full of people who, if you ask them, every one of them probably say, yeah, I'm a Christian. There's anything wrong with baseball? No. But when baseball becomes your God, it is. When football becomes your God, it is. Right? When work becomes your God, that's breaking the first commandment. When your family becomes your God, that's breaking the first commandment. What is it in our lives that we put before God in any way? And ask God to help us, help us with that. Ask God to help us love him with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Ask him to help us set our affections on the things that are above. Well, I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing. And If God's spoken to you and you need to come down and pray, or if you need to come down and give your heart and your life to Christ, or whatever it may be that God's prompted you to do, then you just be obedient to the Lord. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for this privilege that we've had to be in your house. And Lord, I pray that your, your word will not come back void, that it will always accomplish what you send it out to do, that you will use the truth of your word to sanctify us and to cause us to live in light of who you are and what you have done. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.